Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. So we preview the 10th year of March Mammal Matters and dive into some detailed facts about sea slugs. Now, it's March, which means it's time for March Mammal Madness. We give the lowdown of the competition, this year's brackets, and where to find all the information. Plus, we dive into some pretty interesting research about leaf slugs and how they manage to survive for so long without food. Something that might come in handy in March Mammal Madness. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and more importantly, it's about to be March somehow. I know it seems like the year can sneak up on you like that, but definitely something that can sneak up on you is March Mammal Madness. This annual event, which started way back in 2013, is now celebrating its 10th year. Directed and spearheaded by the indomitable professor at Arizona State University, Katie Hind, and her large team of researchers from all different universities working together including librarians teachers active laboratory researchers you name it working together to reach with a scientific communication outreach program over 500,000 students across america alone that's pretty amazing to think about as a reach for an outreach program i'd be happy if this podcast went to a thousand people let alone 500,000 students every year now this event as it is is actually an elimination tournament with 65 competitors 64 rounds and one wild card round and you ask what is this all really about well firstly fun mostly and, and learning about animals and of different types and their behaviors and interactions not just with other creatures but also their environments around them now this all takes place through a form of mock battles one way as professor hind actually herself puts it is it's basically playing D with animals in kind of like a sports setting and that's more or less what the narrators do. They construct elaborate stories about how these creatures would face off against each other. It's not always actually direct actual combat. Often you wind up with two creatures that aren't carnivorous, for example, facing off against each other. A creature could be displaced from the environment. So how do these researchers actually come up with a mechanism for judging what the animals will do in these situations? Obviously, it's not every day that a cheetah sees a polar bear. Now, what they do is actually look at the scientific literature, analyze this, understand creatures' preferences and behaviors, and throw in a bit of dice rolling random number generator to come up with results and outcomes. Sometimes these are randomized to the sense that you get a really major upset. Sometimes an adaption or a particular behavior can lead huge benefits, which would otherwise not be immediately obvious. Sometimes you can have legacy carryovers where a thorn, a poison quill in the side of a creature can impact that predator many rounds later on. Now, all of this to say is that it's a knockout elimination tournament with rounds, where you follow along after filling out and picking your winners through this whole tournament. See who will be crowned as the March Mammal Madness champion for 2022. At the end of it, you probably will have learned a lot about a variety of different creatures, their adaptions, their mechanisms for survival, or lack thereof in the case of some creatures, and how they would face off in a pretty strange circumstance. The creatures that are picked are picked in different categories. There's four different categories each year, and they rotate and change. So you're not talking about the same list of animals every time. And for those who are immediately about to ask me a very obvious question, does this only include mammals? Well, after a few alt mammal inclusions many years ago, the team has elaborated and expanded March Mammal Madness to include many non-mammal species, and mostly this is done for the diversity and interest's sake. But the categories that are being considered in this tournament are mammal collective so this is groups of mammals mammals that have a collective proper noun 
For example, a pride of lion, a labour of moles, a sneak of weasel, and a cauldron of bats. These are, are groupings of creatures, and there's a whole bunch of interestingly named groups of creatures in there, like an embarrassment of pandas or a stench of skunks. The next major category is creatures from the wilderness of North America. These are creatures that you can find scattered across in different population densities, North American region. For everything from the bighorn sheep and coyote to the bison and the grizzly bear. These are creatures for the North America listeners where this is actually tournament based and started and created by. So of course they're going to feature their home region every once in a while. And that's the purpose of this bracket. To look at animals specifically that one might find scattered across North America. Which is great as part of the educational outreach of this program for North American students. For those of us across the world, it's also interesting to learn about these native creatures that we may not have as much information about compared to our own native creatures. Third category is Queens of the Sky and the Sea. Now, one of the challenges about hosting any sort of competitive tournament is picking a single competitor. And often, a lot of research is found, particularly in combat settings, between males of a species. But that's not normally the case. There are many creatures out there in the oceans and the skies that, well, where the females of the species are actually bigger, badder, and way more dangerous or faster or more knowledgeable, whatever it is. And you can see this, for example, in some of these in the animal kingdom, like the orca, the monk seal, see the macaroni penguin and the hagfish, all of these creatures where they have some huge disparity between the genders. And in fact, where the, the female of these species is actually way more either powerful or experienced or have some special skills. And this is a, a bracket designed to focus on and give credit to some of these amazing adaptions to this particular variant of those species that can often get overlooked in other studies. The last bracket in this tournament is answering an age-old question. Why not both? Because there's a lot of weird and wonderful adaptions, which many times the coordinators of this tournament choose to focus on particular creatures with these weird and wonderful adaptions so people learn more about them. But there are some creatures that have weird combinations of things that are not only one cool adaption, but two or more. And these are basically taxa that have these weird, weird adaptions combined in even weirder ways. For example, tusks are a good adaption, so are antlers, but they normally serve the same purpose. But what about if you have both, like the mujek? Whatever you say, well, do you produce milk or do you produce eggs? Which is actually an interesting way of trying to explain what a mammal is. But the echidna, it, well, as a monotrium, it says, why not both? And thinking about something like then you have something like the softness of the skin. Do you want a hardened skin protected by its scales? Or do you want the soft fur? Well, actually, there's plenty of instances where you want both, like in the pangolin. So that section of the bracket focuses on the benefits of taking not one, but two weird adaptions and using them together at the same time, creating sometimes pretty interesting creatures. That's enough information about the background of the tournament. Now, hopefully you have enough information to decide to dive on in. And if you do want to do that, there's a couple of places where I can recommend you go. The first on Twitter, if you want to follow all accounts officially and all information that is produced for the tournament, that's actually where the battles per se take place. Then you want to be heading to Twitter and following the account at 2022 MMM Let's Go or March 
Mammal Madness. That's the official account where all battles and all information and only official information is distributed through. Of course, you can follow the communicators directly, like Professor Katie Hine, which I recommend you do, but it's also useful to go through the official account if you're just diving in. You can also head to Mammals Suck Milk, the blog of Professor Katie Hand, where she also has a detailed rundown of the tournament and links to the main education materials, which are all found on the Arizona State University Library page, where they have an incredible collection of all the details of the tournament. Now, one of the funnest part of this tournament is also being involved with the community interacting online as the battles take place, making your predictions, filling out your bracket and throwing it in the bin when the bracket is busted in the first round, or playing along with rivals online and seeing if you can score better than them in the tournament. That's part of the joy of March Mammal Madness, and I recommend that you take fun and engage with it if you can via Twitter or in other mechanisms if you want. I print out a lot of brackets, we run it with my family and my kids, and they love it too. Now, if you want to have more information and listen to my voice explain it, links is not useful to you, please head, obviously, to the episode descriptions where all these links will be listed, also included in our tweets on this topic. If you want to find more details and references, by all means, follow the links in the descriptions to get that detail. Hopefully you can join in. So the important question is, I'm excited, I'm pumped, I'm filling up my bracket right now, when does it start? Well, the key thing to know is that the bracket was only just released on the 23rd of February. Now this week coming is the week of research before on the 6th of March starts the exhibition battles where you can follow on some pretty interesting and exciting exhibition tournament matches. And then on the 14th is the first round. So basically you've got to lock in that bracket by the 14th and by locking in, no one's enforcing this, but realistically you should probably decide by then because that's when the battles start occurring on Twitter. Now, of course, if you want extra info, follow along with your major accounts and you'll be ready to play along with everybody else. And hopefully you can learn some new interesting things about animals along the way. Now, of course, a huge thank you to the large team that makes this happen, directed, of course, by the Indominal Professor Katie Hind and her team of list of assistants, which grows larger every year. And also to all of those playing along at home, which actually makes up even more of the fun. So in the spirit of learning something very interesting about one of the creatures in the March Mammal Madness bracket, we're going to take a deep dive into the leaf slug. Now, the leaf slug can be found as seeded rank 15 in the one of both categories. They're not necessarily destined to do very well, but the leaf slug is actually pretty fascinating because it does have a pretty strange adaption. Now, here we're going to draw on a couple of papers. The first published in the Journal of Molluscan Studies all the way back in December 2014 with lead author Gregor Krista, along with largely to collaborate. And we're also going to draw from a more recent study from 2020 Scientific Reports in the Nature Journal with lead author Sonia Cruz and a list of collaborators as well. And the, most of this is going to focus around the Succoglosa, which is a group of sea slugs with almost 300 species scattered across this, of which one of the, is the leaf slug that we focus on in March Mammal Madness. But in general, we're going to talk about this actual family of sea slugs. And the reason why is that they have been shown to do something pretty amazing. And that's called functional kleptoplasty. Now, what exactly is that and how does it work? So let's talk a little bit about what happens inside these slugs and why it's such an unusual adaption and giving it the name leaf slug. Well, sometimes they're also called solar powered sea slugs and that gives away a little bit of the hint. Leaf, solar powered, maybe there's something to do with photosynthesis going on and you'd be right. Now, when we say kleptoplasty, we're using the Greek word klepto for thief and what's happening in a creature that's behaving with kleptoplasty is 
basically taking chloroplast from a food source and then incorporating them into the thing that ate its cells. So basically stealing the ability to have the chloroplast and then using it in some way. So organisms capable of functional keprocrasty typically eat algae or aquatic plants and then steal the undigested chloroplasts. These chloroplasts can then either can continue to function and provide energy for their new host via photosynthesis, or they can actually then just be partially digested and basically slowly chewed on and given the, the benefits of without actually performing the photosynthesis. There's a couple of different ways that kleptosis can play out, but in any event, it's basically taking in all of these plastids that are actually undertaking the photosynthetic behavior and then making them work for you inside your stomach or, or inside your body. So you can consider, at least in some ways, kleptoplasty is kind of like a symbolic phenomenon where plastids like the chloroplast from algae then get sequestered into these host organisms. Now, the degree in which they get sequestered and are still functional depends on the type of species we consider. In some cases, where the algae is eaten normally and partially digested, it can leave the plastid intact and the plastid, in some cases, in some creatures, is able to basically keep living on temporarily continuing photosynthesizing and passing all those good benefits onto the predator itself. And you can see this in, in the small scale, but then, you, for example, in many types of plankton. But when it comes to larger species, well, the Sarcosin sea slugs actually are one of the main animals that actually practice this technique. And the Sarcoglosins actually capture functional chloroplasts from algae food sources, and then retain them inside specific cells inside the mollusk's digestive diverticula. Now the exact mechanism about how these cells are then kept alive and actually whether or not they keep producing photosynthesis or they're just scavenged for the material, that's pretty much where the active research side of this comes in because this mechanism is not really fully understood. By the way, other creatures like some flatworms and nudie branches also take this practice as well. In some cases, in the nudie branches at least, they have whole living symbiotic zooxothelae, which actually keep functioning and producing photosynthesis whilst they're inside the digestive tract. So the nudie branches in some cases can be considered more solar powered too. But back to the sea slugs. Most of the controversy in this case stems from the fact that these sea slugs are actually one of the only creatures that have kleptoplasts remaining functional for like several months. And that's pretty interesting because the long-term maintenance of the kleptoplast photosynthetic behavior is really confusing because normally in an algae, the nucleus is the one that's controlling and regulating the plastids and actually governing that whole process of photosynthetic behavior. And that normally gets ingested and digested. And so most of the genetic machinery that's governing this plastid system that is producing this photosynthetic behavior, that's gone. So then how is it continuing to function? Now, this is what has really been puzzling researchers. It's one thing to say that the translocation of photosynthetic derived products from the one product from this ingested thing to the host, that can happen. That's pretty normal and, and well understood. But actually keeping them alive, that's the trickier part. Now, it's certainly possible that the sea slugs are just have slowly, slowly digesting these algae and thus reaping the benefits from it while it's slowly being eaten, basically nibbling at the, the meal while it continues to still produce some stuff as it's being slowly eaten. That's certainly possible. It means that the sea slug itself is not governing the regulation of these plastids, but is just basically reaping the benefits for an extended duration of time. That, that's one hypothesis, but not proven. What's also more confusing is that they actually find spreads by putting radioactive traces into the consumed algae and seeing how it actually spreads to non-kleptoplast cells across the organism. And that is indicative of some kind of incorporation on a functional level of these kleptoplasts. 
between these two species. Now, that's pretty interesting, but there's also still another big problem for these sea slugs. If you're just gonna to continue to get lots of carbon by basically having this algae that you're eating and going through the photosynthetic behavior, that's, that's really helpful, but you end up with a lack of nitrogen because kleptoplasts can provide lots of carbon substrates to the host for a long period of time. So you could get through short periods of starvation. That's useful for the slug, but you could actually end up with a really rapid sudden loss of nitrogen because nitrogen is, is normally not covered by this process. So you're just chowing down the carbon then that's left over. You're not really getting anything else being assimilated like the nitrogen. But it's actually been shown that the kleptoplasts themselves could be mediating nitrogen acquisition, which is really useful because it's helping. It suggests that it's a light dependent assimilation of nitrogen is actually happening even while this algae is being digested. And in the paper published in 2020 in Scientific Reports, they actually found in detail in the suckers and sea slug Alicia viridis using isotope analysis that there was some light driven incorporation of both organic and inorganic carbon and nitrogen into the tissues of the suckers and sea slugs, which means that something is actually inside the sea slugs governing and working with this ingested algae to actually still function and produce some nitrogen and inorganic carbon. That means it could still get a lot of food benefits. So the complete mechanism of how this ingested algae manages to keep these sea slugs alive for extended periods of time without food is not fully explored. We definitely know that it helps with some light dependent activity actually get, gives them some carbon and some nitrogen that they need. But even though we don't know if the, the algae is basically being kept fully running in fully photosynthetic behavior by regulated somehow via the sea slug, we're not entirely sure if that's been proven just yet. But even if it's not the case, it still functions as a pantry, a larder, where in which they can gain food from and scavenge from if they need to. The mysterious leaf slug is able to survive for a long period of time by basically off nothing, by ingesting algae that gives it the ability to basically photosynthesize for a little bit, or rather the algae itself continues to either have some photosynthetic properties or produce some food, or at least temporarily, to get the slug out of a jam. And that makes it a pretty powerful thing. If we had to go for so long without food, is a really handy adaption. Now, we can see it in sea slugs, but we can also see it in other, other simple creatures. And whilst it's not necessarily the greatest skill that you would have in March Mammal Madness, it's still a pretty handy one to go long periods without food. Some research published in the journal Moscow Studies, as well as the journal Scientific Reports. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From tales of marshmallow madness and leaf slugs, we find out some interesting science and how it can be used to help educate and inform people about the amazing creatures of the world. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.